Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Percet. Today we have the incredible opportunity to interview Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason about his new book, The Story of Reality, already a bestseller in both Christian discipleship and Christian apologetics. I'm excited to have him back on the show. He's been on in the past. You can go to GodSolutionShow.com to get those past interviews. And you can go to str.org, that's str.org, for more on Greg Kokel. Welcome to The God Solution, Greg Kokel. It's great to have you back on. Hey, I'm thrilled to talk with you guys about the new book. It's, it's really great to be with you. Thanks. So your new book is The Story of Reality, right. How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. Right, it's... in less than 200 pages, no less. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's uh, a bestseller on Amazon right now. I saw that today. And so, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I've been tracking it, too, and it, it actually, yesterday, it popped into the top 100. So, I was very happy to see that. Isn't People that, are responding well to it. That's awesome. Well, I hope that all the listeners will go ahead and pick up that book as soon as possible. And this show is going to whet your appetite a little bit for that. And as we start, I just wanted to ask you kind of a, a personal question, and that's, why did you write this thing? Well, there are a couple of different things on my mind, um, actually two that come to mind immediately. And the first is that I wanted to offer a kind of primer on Christianity's basics. I mean, each of the critical, essential elements that are at the very foundation of our worldview, these are the kinds of things that are so important that if you take anyone out, well, you wouldn't have Christianity anymore. You'd have something else. Um, so I wanted to have the basics in there, but I didn't want to write another theological textbook. I wanted to show how the important pieces fit together in a fascinating drama. I wanted to give a wide-angle view so Christians can see how the story fits together and others could see how the story fits together so they never get lost in the details again. So, so the first thing that I had in mind is let's tell the story in a winsome, attractive, energized, accurate, foundational way that will capture people's attention, all right? But there's something else that was in, in my mind here throughout, and uh, this uh, is, is something that really informed the title of the book, The Story of Reality. I wanted to continually press the point, and I do this from the very first page all the way to the very last page, the very last lines of the story. I wanted to continually press the point that what I described in the book is not my personal spiritual fantasy. It's not my religious wishful thinking. It's not my uh, make-believe-to-make-me-feel-happy kind of story. That isn't the kind of story we're telling in Christianity. Our story doesn't start out once upon a time for a good reason, it, because it's not telling a fairy tale. What I want the reader to understand is that our claim is, and, and all I'm saying right out of the gate is what our claim is. I have to defend the claim later. But I just want people to see that that what we're saying is that the things in the story describe things that actually exist, and the events in the story really happened, or in some places are, are going to happen. It's an accounting of the way the world actually is. The reason this is so important, fellas, 
is because nowadays people have, a, and even Christians, have a habit of relativizing religion. Uh, they reduce it to your truth versus my truth versus their truth, uh, and that's the end of it. I had an earlier interview today, and somebody made a comment about, well, people will say, oh, it's the story of your reality. Well, that's your reality. That's not my reality. And notice how immediately they've relativized it to their interior stories, their interior feelings or beliefs. That's not what I'm writing about. Um, people say it's your truth versus my truth. Look at um, if the story is not accurate to reality, it's not any kind of truth at all. So it can't be my truth or your truth, even if we believe in it. It can only be our delusion or our mistake or our error. It can never be our truth. Right. And so I want people to see that Christianity claims to be true in the deep sense. And if it isn't, then it solves nothing at all. I want people to see that Jesus understood the world not first from the inside out, my beliefs, my convictions, my morality, my view of religion or anything. I wanted them to see that Jesus saw it from the outside in. That is, if, if the view of the world outside of us, irrespective of our, of our beliefs or our feelings, if that view isn't accurate, it doesn't matter what we feel about it or believe about it. We're wrong. And it can never give us any lasting hope. So that, those are the two things that are really at the core, fellas, particularly this notion that we are talking about reality. We need to make our case. And I do a lot of what, what I call now soft apologetics, that is weaving in um, kind of thoughtful reflections that are friendly appeals to common sense insights that we all have about the world that I think point to the truthfulness of Christianity. So, so there is, a, in a sense, a, a gentle attempt to make my case throughout the book, but at the same time I want people to be very clear on the kind of case Christians mean to be making, and that's the case about how the world really is, the story of reality. Mm. So, Greg, as if summarizing the whole Bible in 200 pages isn't, <laughs> isn't tough enough, can I, can I challenge you just a little further and, and ask you if you had to summarize the whole book and your whole main point down to one or two sentences, what, what would you say? Well... <clears throat> If, if I'm allowed to give a, a, a little bit of a long sentence, I would say that the story of reality is about how God created man to be in friendship with him, how man rebelled and therefore broke the world, that's the problem of evil, and how God initiated a rescue plan by becoming a man himself to live the life man should have lived, and take the punishment that we deserved so that we can experience pardon and live with him in the kind of wonderful world that our hearts have always longed for. Mm, that's beautiful. There you go. That's a long sentence, but it's... it kind of covers the heart and the soul, really, of what uh, the story of reality is about. And I don't mean now just the book. I mean the Bible, because the Bible is the story of reality, right? It is. That's the whole point. We're getting reality from the Bible, and that's the way the story kind of fits together. I just gave you the kind of the plot line. And if you think about it, there are five words that will are, are really um, helpful words to simply um, outline the plot line. And very simple. I mean, my, my nine-year-old now, when she was seven, she could recite these. Easy, okay? And here they are. God, man, 
Jesus, cross, resurrection. Let me say it again. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. There's your story, plot line. The beginning, God, and the end, final resurrection to reward or judgment, and all the important things that happen in between. There they are. And you and I break the book down into five basic parts with those names, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection, with uh, multiple small chapters describing the details that are important in every one of those areas. So that, I think, captures the story pretty well. Mm. So your your original sentence was long, but I'm going to let it slide because it's such a it's, it's such a great sentence. It's such a great. Well, sentence. it's not bad for summing the entire 66 <laughs> no, books of the not Bible down into one sentence. Not at all. So, can <laughs> can I ask who this book is for? Who's the target audience? Is this a book that Christians can give to non Christians? Can I give this to my teens? Who's who's it targeted for? Yeah. Well, you know, every writer would like to say his book is for everybody. Um, But in this case, I think um, that's not too far off. Um, Most Christians who have been around for a while have their story, their understanding of the Christian narrative in bits and pieces, like puzzle pieces in a pile on the floor. They've never put it together in a way to see how powerful it really is when assembled as a whole. Well, this book is for them. But many are young Christians who are just putting it all together for the first time. They didn't have all the pieces yet. So this book is for them, too, because I'll give them the basic pieces and show how they connect together, and that helps them to get a solid start. There are other older Christians who actually know the story. They see it all, but they don't know how to tell it succinctly and, I think, memorably for their congregations. This could be pastors or Bible study leaders or youth group leaders or even teaching their own disciples. Well, this book is for them, too, to help pass that on to their own congregants or their own sheep or whatever, to, to help them to get a good foundation. But there's, there's, there's a whole other world of people out there. I've just described the Christians that need the book to understand their own story. I'll tell you honestly, fellows, I was thinking when I sat down to write, when I'm doing the wordsmithing, what I was thinking about constantly was the non-Christian reader. How is he going to take this? How are they, they going to read this? Am I speaking language they understand? And am I, am I anticipating objections that might come up in their mind and gently kind of working through that with them and walking them along? There are many non-Christians who don't take this story seriously, partly because they've never seen how well it fits together. That is how it offers tremendous explanatory power regarding the world we actually live in. And, and this is why I was trying to construct, have a voice, so to speak, that was a storytelling voice. I wanted anyone who picked up the book to feel like I was talking directly with them. And it, even if they were a moderately interested skeptic, um, they would be getting our story in a way that doesn't offend them with condescension or empty slogans, but would hold their interest and get them thinking. So I, I think um, it's a very wide audience that I have in mind, but that's because I think it's a very wide audience that would benefit from books like this. So it's, it's, uh, it's different than anything that I've done in the past, which is more targeted to a slice of Christians, like the Tactics book, for example. And that's to help Christians maneuver in conversations when they uh, talk about Christ with people. But this is much more expansive than just, in a sense, the evangelism apologetics crowd. It's for the body of Christ in general and any 
semi-interested skeptic that a Christian might know that he might hand the book to and invite them to read it. Mm-hmm. I think if you think about, and I always feel a little uncomfortable, fellas, with this this uh, comparison, because it's not really a comparison, but it gives you an idea of the category. If you think about mere Christianity for a new generation, well, it's something kind of along those lines. It is meant to to reach a broad spectrum of people. Uh, nobody can write like Lewis. Lewis is, you know, in a class by himself, no question. But I was trying to do something like what he was trying to do, and he did it so successfully in mere Christianity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. I'm thinking about a young man that I've been speaking to. I met him about a week ago during one of our evangelism times, and he said that he's a skeptic, and he has been since he was a teenager because he concluded that he has to follow the evidence, and he can't just believe what he wants to believe. After sharing some of the evidence for the resurrection, he said, well, I refuse to believe that because I don't believe resurrections can happen. And I told him, aren't you doing the same thing you promised yourself you would not do as a teenager, but now you're doing it with your atheism? And he said, I I mean, he caught it. He realized that he was. Oh, well, that's good. Good for him. It's a rare thing. When somebody does that, and you point it out, that they have the intellectual integrity to say, you know what, you got a point there. Well, this is a it, wonderful young man. I mean, he says, I wish it were true, but I've never been presented the evidence for it. So uh-huh. this is, I mean, right now he's going through Habermas's book on the resurrection. And after that, I think I'm going to buy this uh, new friend of mine this book. I think it, it sounds like the perfect kind of book for a guy like that. Am I right? Well, that's, that's great. And, and Gary Habermas's book, The Resurrection, is fabulous. I, I think another one who does great work on this is Jay Warner Wallace. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not to, we're talking about my book, but to tout other people's books is fine because it, it's going to help you in the enterprise. And let me just make a point that Jay Warner Wallace makes. He talks about all of the alternate explanations for the resurrection, you know, the swoon theory and the bi- disciples stole the body and uh, there was hallucinations and all this other stuff. And he shows how every one of these things is completely inadequate, that there's all these barriers of going the naturalistic route, okay? and But when it goes to looking at the resurrection itself going that way, there's only a single barrier. And the only barrier is when the skeptic says, I don't believe in resurrections. But what Jay Warner Wallace points out is that is a barrier that the skeptic has put in the place it's himself. He's put it there. It doesn't belong there. It's not native to that. He's actually chosen to put it there. And uh, and I I thought that was a very compelling point. So you might want to use it with your friend. Yeah, well— it's begging the question is what it is. It's it, it absolutely is. You're right on to that. Okay, now i got to ask you a question. The title of the book is The Story of Reality. And, uh-huh. I mean, you, you have written on relativism. You co-authored uh, one of the most famous books out there on the topic, uh, Relativism, Feet Planted Firmly in Midair. Right. And you have uh, talked about how to work with people that buy into relativism. In your book, Tactics, we talked about that previously on the show. Uh You know, the people that say there is no truth, you ask them, is that true? I mean, for anybody in the audience that hasn't read Tactics, it is a must-read for every believer. I mean, if there were five books you had to pick, that's one of them. So please go get Tactics. Now, concerning this new book, The Story of Reality, you just talked about the friends or even the Christians that say that's reality for you, but my reality is different. They relativize reality. What's so important about reality, and, and what is reality? 
Well, uh, reality simply is the way things actually are, okay? And so when somebody says, well, that's your reality, but it's not my reality, they are, using, they are abusing the word, just like saying that's your truth, but it's not my truth. As I mentioned a few moments ago, if the thing that we say is true is not true, then it can't be our truth. It can only be our belief that is mistaken, or maybe our delusion, but it's not our truth. So the, 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 a similar kind of thing is going on when people say, well, that may be your reality, but not my reality. You are not using the word reality in any kind of coherent sense. Reality is the way things are. Now, we may have different beliefs about the way reality actually is, but we both can't be true if we disagree on these things, okay? It makes no sense to call it your reality versus my reality, okay? So the, the big problem with that whole approach right there is that they're abusing the words to advance a relativistic understanding of these kinds of things. The fact is, though, that if reality has a way of getting our attention, all right? I don't know if you ever backed off of a stoop or a porch or something and fell down because you didn't realize there was no step there. Um, my wife and I were just watching some, like, funniest video things last night, all these little ki clips of kids and, and adults doing goofy things because they fall over in weird ways or whatever. What's going on there? That is reality is telling them what it's like. You know, if we keep going back, 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 we're going to take a photo photograph, and all of a sudden we fall into the pool, reality is telling us something about itself. You know, we got it wrong. We didn't take it seriously. We weren't paying attention, and we got, we got a surprise, all right, or maybe even got injured. So reality has a way of getting our attention if we pay attention to it. And, uh, it, and also it, it, it helps us because it has a way of getting our attention. This means that we can know some things that are true about reality. And a point that I make in the book is that we are actually truth seekers by nature. And for the people who don't think, well, you can't know us. There is no story of reality. You can't know a story like that. Um, um, I, I refer to this marvelous little invention called a map, or somebody might be a, use a GPS. Uh, how, do, how do maps work? Well, maps are claims about the way the actual world, the topography, is. And if you want to get from point A to point B, you look at the map, you consider the claim, and then you drive. And if you drive and arrive, then you, uh, then you have affirmed that at least a portion of that claim about reality, the map, is actually true. Now, if, you, if not, well, you're going to find that out sooner or later, you know, and make your adjustments. The point I'm making is that there is no justification for radical skepticism about figuring out what reality is like. And I realize that using a map isn't the same thing as finding the meaning of life, but it strikes me that if you can do the first, then that at least opens up the opportunity for discovering things about the second issue. This idea that, well, it's your reality, that my reality, this is, a, this is a, this, if you pardon the expression, it's a sloppy way of talking that leads to sloppy thinking, all right? So let's be careful about our talking. Different people have different beliefs. Those beliefs are either true or false, all right? The way we know they're true or false is by testing them against the way the world really is. And when we discover something is true, then we have secured a piece of reality for our knowledge. 
It's not so hard. It's not so tricky. But uh, people begin to play games, I think, mental games, word games, with uh, religious claims um, or moral claims that they, they really are not justified in playing if they really thought carefully about it. Mm. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Greg, can I take you in a, in a whole different direction here? Sure, it's your show. Um, You're the boss. Ah, <laughs> that's, can you tell my <laughs> wife you said that? Can you send a note, a note home for me? <laughs> um, so this is a really non-controversial issue, but let me just paraphrase something I think I got from you. Jesus didn't come to help us get along or teach us to take care of the poor or to restore social justice. Right. What do you say to people who believe that Jesus came so that we could help people? Well, I have a very simple observation to make, okay? Anybody that has any opinion about Jesus at all has got to get that opinion from somewhere. Now, there are, and Gary Habermas makes this point, there are 17 other extra-biblical sources that give some information about Jesus, but let's face it, the bulk of it is going to be in the sources that we know about Ma- as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you're going to get an opinion about the reason Jesus came and what he was all about and the basis of his teachings and all that, you've got to go back to those records that were written by people very, very close to the circumstances that they wrote about. Okay, so with that in mind, um, gee, what do they say about this issue? What if I were to tell you that you could take every single thing that Jesus ever said about the poor, or anything that could be construed as social justice, and you can completely leave it out of an account of his life, and you still would not influence the most uh, important details of the purpose of his life one single bit. Now, I think saying that is going to set a whole bunch of people back on their heels, but listen to this. That is exactly what one of Jesus' closest followers did. We know him as the beloved disciple John, who wrote the last account of Jesus' life. Many consider the Gospel of John to be the most exalted characterization of both the person and the work of Christ. And you can read from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 21, verse 25, that's the beginning to the end, and you will not find a single word that has anything to do with helping the poor or pursuing social justice. Now, why is it that John, the beloved disciple, left all of that out of his consummate um, summary of the life of Jesus of Nazareth? I'll tell you why. It isn't because Jesus didn't care about those things, because he did speak about them. It's because it wasn't the purpose of his life. It isn't why he came. John tells in spades, really, the reason why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost, to die on the cross, to rescue sinners, to call sinners to repentance, all of these things that Jesus himself said, John focuses in on that. And so I can say with confidence that this could not be the main purpose of Jesus' life, because if it was, then John the Apostle missed it completely. A person who lived with Jesus for three and a half years, the faithful disciple who stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was, was uh, crucified and uh, stood there comforting Jesus' mother Mary, that disciple, we'd have to say, got it completely wrong. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it, we all know that Jesus 
treated uh, the sick and he helped the poor, etc. So obviously those things are important. But when it right. comes to the reality of the universe, the reality is that people were made for relationship with God. And a whole lot of them right now are not experiencing that. And they have nothing but eternity separate from him to look forward to. So right. the, main, the main point is that they would hear the gospel, that they would come to know a Savior that loves them so much. Yeah, what I don't want to do is create a false dichotomy here. The Apostle John gives the most elegant summary of the life of Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospel of John, the final gospel that was written, and never mentions anything at all about uh, helping the poor or anything that could be construed as social justice. The point of that is not to argue that the poor are irrelevant and that we have no responsibility, because, in fact, Jesus did um, uh, pay a lot of attention to the poor and healed those who came, and he fed fed the hungry and, and, and whatever, and, and allowed, and I should say, um, passed those, that ethic on to, to us. And so in the book of Acts and the other letters, we see the importance of that. It, what it does teach us, though, is that is not the main reason that Jesus came. And if what we do is um, if we're, we're focusing in on the so-called social justice, I actually don't like the term, but let's just call charity issues, because that's the biblical mm-hmm. term. If we focus in on charity issues um, to the exclusion of the gospel, then we've missed the boat. Mm-hmm. We've missed it entirely. So I, I don't want to see it as a, as, a, as a false dichotomy, though. It, there is a pecking order. We, would, we don't want the tail to wag the dog, but the tail has a place, okay? Yeah, and, um, and it is true, I think, that people can create credibility in people in other people's minds for the gospel because of the guy, the, the good kind actions that they manifest towards others and that Christians have been historically uh, characteristic of offering okay but if that is the only way that we're going to advance the message of Jesus like being being nice and helping people I just want to make an observation you will never be able to out nice a Mormon mm. <laughs> No, All right? oh. They're really nice people, true. but they have true. a different message. And so if being nice is all that our evangelism method um, consists of, then we have some really stiff competition from a different religious view. Mm-hmm. We've got to go beyond just being nice. We've got to, we've got to be front and center with the truth of the gospel as, as a church, just though, even though there could be some enterprises of the church that are focusing principally on the poor, um, as a church, though, our main purpose is to bring the good news to the poor, and that is the poor in spirit, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, mm-hmm. not the poor in wealth, financial wealth. Those who have spiritual poverty, those who are beating their breasts saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the kind of poverty Jesus is most concerned with. Could you please repeat what you said about John? There is only one reference to the poor in John, ah. and it, it famously it's dismissive. Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. And um, in the context there, um, this was when his feet was being anointed with um, expensive oil, and someone, maybe Judas, was saying a little disingenuously, we could have given that money to the poor. And Jesus said, hey, you always have the poor with you. This is for me. This is anointing for my burial. Now, it isn't that Jesus was dismissing the poor, but notice the comparison. The oil could be used for the poor, 
or for Jesus' burial. Jesus' burial, figuratively speaking, because Jesus was talking about his death that was soon to happen. Okay? And he's saying his death is a lot more important in the big scheme of things than feeding the poor. And that's the order, the pecking order that I'm talking about. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the interview with Greg Kokel about his new book, The Story of Reality, a bestseller in many different areas already. You can tune back in next week for the second part of this interview. But before we end the show, I have to tell you that the story of reality points to Jesus and Jesus alone. As you heard on the show today, and you'll hear again next week, if you've never taken the step to put your faith and trust in Jesus, please don't wait another day. He alone is the way to salvation and eternal life. And the only way to experience that is through putting our faith in him, believing in him. You could verbalize your faith right now saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please be my Savior and Lord. Well, I hope you'll go to GodSolutionShow.com and get this interview and all of our past shows. While you're there, consider making a tax-deductible gift that will help keep the show on the air. Hey, well, thanks so much for listening. Please keep listening and letting your friends know about the God Solution Show. Thanks again for listening. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.